One of my favorite authors is a man named Randy Alcorn. He's the founder and director of Eternal Perspective Ministries and a prolific writer. Some time ago, I was listening to a sermon that he preached at a pastor's conference. It was a sermon he preached all the way back in 2004. I love to listen to preachers. That's what I like to do oftentimes in my spare time. He began the message by talking about a two-month mission trip that he and his family had taken that included a visit to Egypt. And he said that while he was in Egypt, his host took him to an abandoned graveyard located at the end of a garbage-lined alley where he pointed out one tombstone in particular that belonged to a man named William Borden. You may or may not recognize the name William Borden. He was the heir to the Borden Dairy Estate. He was a millionaire by the age of 21, but he was also a deeply, extremely deeply committed Christian. And ended up renouncing his fortune and giving nearly all of it away because his heart's desire more than anything else was to be a missionary. He wanted to travel to China and take the gospel to the Muslims who were living in China. And that's what he set out to do. When he left for China, he stopped in Egypt along the way to study Arabic as a part of his preparation. But he was only there for four months when he contracted spinal meningitis and died at the age of 25, never made it to China. His story is both tragic and powerful at the same time. When he graduated from high school, his parents, as a graduation gift, gave him a trip, a gift of, of a trip around the world. If some of you folks are wondering about your high school graduate this upcoming May, <laughs> there's an idea. But as he traveled around the world, he just saw in country after country, needy people, hurting people, wounded people, lost people, and it just created this desire in his heart to be a missionary. And so while he was on that trip, he wrote back to his parents and shared with them about his desire to become a missionary. At the same time, he took his Bible, and in the back of his Bible, where there was a blank, empty space, he wrote two words. In a place like this in my Bible, he wrote two words. He wrote the words, no reserves. When he returned from his trip around the world, he enrolled at Yale University, and he had a powerful impact on the campus almost right away. As a freshman, he began a small Bible study and prayer group, which gave birth ultimately to 150 similar groups by the end of his freshman year. By the time he was a senior, it's reported that 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in one of those Bible study and prayer groups. At some point during his time there in college, he made another entry, or he made an entry rather in his personal journal, journal, journal that defined the direction of his life. He wrote in his journal simply these words, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. That's really what defined his life. Say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. When he graduated, he turned down multiple high-paying jobs in the secular world to enroll in seminary at Princeton, at the Princeton Seminary in New Jersey. And when he did that, he opened up his Bible to that page where he had written those two words, no reserves, and he wrote two new words underneath of them. This time he wrote the words, no retreats. It was upon his graduation from Princeton that he left for China with that stopover in Egypt where he died. When I was listening to the message <clears throat> by Randy Alcorn, he said that after his host 
pointed out Borden's grave, he went over to take a closer look. He said, I had to push back the weeds that had grown up around the gravestone, and I had to brush off the inscription so that I could read the words. And as I looked at the gravestone, after describing his love for Christ, his love for the Muslim people, and the sacrifices that he had willingly made to serve God, the inscription ended with these words. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a life. And it struck me that that story about William Borden's gravestone presents all of us with an important question that we need to ask and answer. What is the explanation for my life? Jesus answered that question during his earthly ministry. You see, actually, if you study the Gospels, that he answered it a variety of different ways on several occasions. A couple come to my mind. We're probably all familiar, at least most of us are familiar with the story of Zacchaeus. Well, one evening, Jesus was in Jericho, and he was in the home of Zacchaeus. We know the story about how he got there. He was having dinner with Zacchaeus and several of his friends who are described as sinners and tax collectors. And at one point, Zacchaeus, in the middle of the dinner, says, I'm going to give away half of all that I have to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'm going to pay back four times the amount. And Jesus, in that moment, declares that salvation has come to Zacchaeus, not because he's willing to give away his possessions, but because those statements reflect the change that's happened in his heart. And then Jesus followed that up with these words in Luke 19 and verse 10. He said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. And Jesus is giving us the explanation for his life. He came to seek and to save what was lost. On another occasion, Jesus was with the disciples, and they were arguing among themselves about who was the greatest. And Jesus sees the opportunity to teach them about the importance of serving others and that uh, one of the greatest things that you can do in life is serve others, put others' needs above yourself. And then he said these words in Mark chapter 10, In verse 45, he said, for even the Son of Man, he's talking about himself with the use of the word Son of Man. He said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And then he added this, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And again, what we see is Jesus telling us the explanation for his life. But we don't just see Jesus doing that in the Scriptures. The Apostle Paul did that as well. In Acts chapter 20, which has always been an incredibly moving passage of Scripture to me, we see the Apostle Paul saying goodbye to a group of men who had been elders at the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian elders. They weren't in Ephesus. Paul was concerned about traveling to Ephesus, and so he called for the elders to meet him at a different location, and they spent time together. And Paul tells them that he is never going to see them again, that they are never going to see his face again because he's compelled by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And he doesn't know what waits for him in Jerusalem, although the Holy Spirit has also warned him that when he goes to Jerusalem, he can expect imprisonment and he can expect hardship and suffering. And their time together ends with all of them, Acts chapter 20 says, kneeling and weeping and praying together 
In fact, Acts chapter 20 and verse 37 says that those men, those Ephesian elders, when they knelt with Paul to pray, they embraced him and they kissed his face. Give you a little bit of an idea of the emotion of the moment. Somewhere in the middle of all of that, Paul makes this statement. It's recorded in Acts chapter 20 and verse 24. He says, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may, I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And you could say that Paul was answering the question, what's the explanation for my life? You read the Gospels and you see Jesus answering the question. You read the book of Acts and the epistles that were written by the Apostle Paul and you see Paul answering the question, what's the explanation for my life? But what about you today? What about me? What's the explanation for your life? I mean, if somebody looked at your life like you could look at the life of William Borden, the short life of William Borden, you could see the choices that he made, and you could see the decisions that he made, and the, the, the route that he cho chose to take with his life, and, and they could say, apart from faith, there's no explanation for this kind of life. If they looked at your life or mine, and they looked at the choices that we've made in our lives, and the choices that we make every single day, and the things that we pursue, and the things that are clearly most important to us, and they asked the question, what's the explanation for this? What would be the answer? For you, for me, what would be the answer? It's the first weekend of a new year. It's the first weekend of a new decade. And for a long time here at church, we have set aside this weekend for what we call Vision Weekend. We set aside this weekend to spend some time trying to paint a picture of what the future might look like for Mount Pleasant Christian Church. Vision is a powerful word. It's a powerful word in any setting. It's certainly a powerful, powerful word when it comes to church. There's a verse in the book of Proverbs that's often cited to talk about the power of vision. It's Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18. But you've got to read that verse in the right translation of the Bible to see, actually see the word vision used there. Let me show you what I'm talking about. In the King James Version of the Bible, Proverbs 29 and verse 18 is rendered like this. Where there is no vision, everyone say vision, vision. The people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. And so you see it clearly there. But if you read that verse in the New International Version Bible, the Bible that I've got in front of me this morning and the one that I've used the entire time that I've been here at Mount Pleasant, this is how Proverbs 29 and verse 18 reads. It says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Well, then you could read it in the New Living Translation, which, by the way, is a translation that I love. And if I were starting all over again tomorrow as a 21-year-old pastor, this is the translation I would use. When somebody asks me to recommend a Bible to them today, that's the Bible that I recommend. This is how it reads in the New Living Translation. When the people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. But whoever obeys the law is joyful. So what's, what's the meaning of this verse? What's the meaning of these words? I mean, the King James Bible talks about vision. The New International Version Bible talks about revelation. The New Living Translation talks about divine guidance. What's the meaning? Which one is correct? Here's what I think. I think they're all correct. 
Because in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 18, what the proverb writer is trying to tell us more than anything else is that when you live with faith in God, and I hope that describes you today, when you are a person of faith, when you are a believer, whatever word or words you want to use to characterize that, when you live with faith in God, the vision for your life needs to be a revelation from God because we all need his divine guidance in our lives. So I think all those verses are correct. In other words, when we talk about having a vision for something, whether it's our life or whether it's our family or whether it's our church, what we're really talking about is connecting with God's plan. And that means vision isn't about your goals and vision isn't about what you want. It's about what God wants. Vision isn't about you and it's not about me. It's about God. And we're not ever going to understand vision, not fully until we understand that. Vision's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about God. I'm going to put a verse up on the screen from Acts chapter 13, verse 36. These were words spoken uh, by the Apostle Paul. Of course, the book of Acts was written by a man named Luke, and he is recording in different parts of the book of Acts what was said by other men. And the Apostle Paul is in a synagogue in a place called Antioch Pisidian, and he's preaching a message about Jesus. And in the middle of the message about Jesus, he says, for when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. Now, that might seem like an odd verse, but let me try to explain it to you. When I say that the Apostle Paul was preaching a message about Jesus, to be more specific, he was preaching a message about the uniqueness of the resurrection of Jesus. He was presenting the reality of who Jesus was, and he was talking about the uniqueness of the resurrection. Can we all agree today that someone who raises, who's, who raise, is raised from the dead, that's a pretty unique thing? It doesn't happen all the time. This is incredible. It's a it's perhaps the greatest supernatural miracle that could ever happen. And so to further illustrate how dramatic that was and how unique that was, he uses an illustration of David, somebody that was an incredible character in the Old Testament, somebody that the Jewish people would have been very familiar with and says, for when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, which is to say he died. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But in contrast to that, he was talking about Jesus and the uniqueness of the, re of the resurrection. But beyond the point that Paul was making, I love the way he describes David. He said about David, he served God's purpose in his own generation. In other words, he was saying that David, while he was alive, did the will of God. Did David make mistakes in his life? Absolutely did. He made some colossal mistakes. But ultimately, and this is what made David special, this is what made David a man after God's own heart. After he did some pretty stupid things, he always realized his sin, repented, and turned his heart back to God. And so he served God's purpose in his own generation. Well, it's easy for us to understand about that about David because David was a special person. David was a big part of God's ultimate story. But what we need to understand is that God has a purpose for each of us in our generation as well. God, you're not going to be like David. You're never going to be the king of a country, but God has a special purpose for you right now in the generation and the time that you're living in, and he has a special purpose for me as well. In other words, God has a vision for your life, whoever you are. No matter how significant or insignificant you might think that you are, God has a vision for your life I believe that just like I believe God has a vision for my life as well.
So I'm going to put the first part of Proverbs 29, verse 18 back up on the screen in all three different versions, just the, the first part. And what I want to focus on is the latter part of the first part. So in the King James Version, the proverb writer says, where there is no vision, and then he says, the people perish. And then in the NIV, it says, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. And then in the New Living Translation, it says, when the people do not accept divine guidance, they run wild. Actually, that's my favorite right there. (laughs) Well, let me try to summarize in my own words what I believe the proverb writer is saying when he says the people perish and when he says the people cast off restraint and when he says about the people that they run wild. What he's really telling us is that knowing God's will, knowing God's purpose, knowing God's vision for your life protects you and keeps you on target. Let me ask a question, and certainly I don't expect you to answer out loud. Have you ever done something stupid in your life? And if we take it a step further, have you ever done something stupidly sinful in your life? Have you ever found your life, maybe just for a time, maybe just for a season, going the wrong direction? Well, this verse, this Proverbs 29 and verse 18, especially the first part, that applies specifically to us because it's telling us that knowing God's will for your life protects you and keeps you on target. The King James Version says, where there is no vision, the people perish. The word perish in the original language of the Old Testament, which is the Hebrew language, is the Hebrew word para. And the most accurate translation of that Hebrew word para is actually a combination of the way that verse is translated both in the NIV and the NLT because the word para means to let go or to let loose or to neglect. And what really we learn from that is that when we don't care about or we don't focus on what God wants for our life, what the will of God is in our life, when that's not a priority for us and we make our own plans and we go our own ways, oftentimes we do that without any restraint. When we let go, when we let loose, when we neglect God's plan, for our life. We go our own way, oftentimes without any restraint, and it can look at times like we're just running wild. But we don't see it in the moment oftentimes because in the moment when we're running wild, we don't have the spiritual clarity that we need to navigate our lives because we're disconnected from God's purpose, from God's vision, from God's will and God's plan for our life. And we can make some bad choices and some stupid mistakes when that happens. Not long after my family moved here, or I moved my family here in October 2001, I I had to travel back to Oklahoma to preach a revival. I had scheduled that revival before I had accepted the call to come and be the pastor here at Mount Pleasant Christian Church. It was a small church in a small town not far from Oklahoma City. And so I could have flown to Oklahoma City, but instead I flew to Tulsa, my hometown, so that I could see my mother and I could see my family. And I borrowed a car from family and I drove to Oklahoma City so that I could be a part of that revival. It was like, I think, a three, maybe a a three or four night revival. 
Uh, and uh, it was an unusual situation because when I got there, the preacher at this little church didn't have any plans for me for the daytime while I was there, which was unusual because normally, and I've preached a lot of revivals, especially when I was young. You know, churches don't have revivals anymore. I mean, how many, can, have you ever, anybody ever been to a revival, what was called a revival meeting? Okay. All right. Some of us old timers, we've been to those things. But uh, some of you young people are like, what? what are you talking about? Well, let me just say a revival is what happens every weekend at Mount Pleasant Christian Church. I remember telling a story about how I used to call on people, do evangelistic calling on people, and I would take a film strip projector with me so that I could show them the story of the gospel of Jesus. And after the service, somebody, I don't know, they were 35, 40 years old, came up to me and said, uh, Pastor, what's a film strip projector? And I said, oh, criminy, golly. I got to get some new illustrations. Anyway, so I, I, he, I, he just took me to his house. I stayed with he and his wife, and he got up and went to church every morning, and his wife went to her job every morning. They just left me there at the house all by myself with nothing to do. Usually when I would go to do a revival, the preacher would, would take me, and we would call on people, you know, and say, hey, I hope you're coming. To, I, want you to, I want you to meet our, our revival speaker. Our service starts at 7 at night. I hope you come. You know, you need to get your life right with God, you know, and we do all these kinds of things, but nothing. He didn't even have plans for me for lunch. And so I was just there in this house all during the day, all by myself. I had a car, but this was a little bitty town. There was no place to go, nothing to do. Well, it was a bad, oh my gosh, it was a bad time in my life because we hadn't lived here in Indiana very long. And my family was so unhappy when we first moved here. My children were so unhappy. They were just miserable. They were both in school. Andrew was, uh, he was like a, the first semester of his junior year in high school, and Trisha was in the eighth grade. And Sandy, bless her heart, had to bear the brunt of all that because she was around them more than I was because I was trying to get myself acclimated to a, a brand new church. But I was unhappy. I was homesick. I, I had inherited this big staff, and, and I didn't know who I could trust. I mean, that sounds worse than I mean it to, but I, what I mean by that is I, all these people were here, and they had no commitment, no connection to me, and um, I just felt like I'd made a terrible mistake. And so, I, I was in that house all alone all day long, and these, this is the only thing that I thought about. These thoughts about how unhappy everybody was and how big a mistake this was, that just ran through my mind over and over again. And so I got to tell you, I, I started to, to make up these wild plans about how to get out of this place and how to, <laughs> how to take my family back to Oklahoma or back to Texas, which were the two places we had lived before. I had grown up in Oklahoma and Sandy and I got married in Texas. Both our kids were born in Texas. And I had, there were a lot of versions of, for that plan of how I could do that. And some of the versions included just thinking, well, forget about being a pastor. I don't have to be a pastor. There's a lot of different things I could do to make a living. I just want out. Because the darkness of that moment was so great that I didn't give any consideration to God's will for my life for his plan or his purpose for my life. I wasn't focused on what God's vision was for me or what his purpose was for me or what his divine guidance was for me, what his revelation was for me. I was just focused on 
me. Well, fortunately for me, that was just a temporary lapse in my spiritual judgment. And I came home to Indiana. And here it is 18 years later. It's vision weekend of 2020 for our church. And so much has been accomplished over the years, not just in the time that I've been here, but just over the years of this church. So many good things. God has done so many good things. He's blessed us with an absolutely incredible church. He's blessed us with this incredible church campus here in Greenwood, which is completely paid for thanks to your generosity, your faithfulness. We have a powerful, powerful global presence around the world through our mission partners around the world. In just a couple of weeks, not next weekend, but the next after that, Ajay Law will be here from India, and he'll be preaching that weekend. And I'm going to ask you a favor, and I'm going to ask all of you who are listening online a favor as well. I'm going to ask you to make sure that you're here that weekend. I can't describe to you, anybody who's ever been to India would agree, but you, you, I can't describe to you the reception that they give to you when you travel to India. It is unlike anything you could ever experience and, and if I tried to describe it to you, you would think I was exaggerating and embellishing the story, but it's not. And so I, will you be here on that weekend of the 18th and 19th for him? Will you be here? And, and, and here's what I'd really like to do. I'd like to just, I'm not going to be here on that, on that uh, weekend. I'm, I'm coming home from a trip on Sunday night, but I'm going to record a, a video to uh, 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 introduce Ajay. And we'll play that video. And when he steps up on the platform to preach, I want everyone to stand to their feet and clap and applaud and give him the best and the most warm standing ovation that he's ever had before because he is certainly a man who deserves that. Every week we serve not just our community, but we serve hundreds of people, thousands of people actually in some cases around the greater Indianapolis area through our impact center here on campus through Change for a Dollar, several other initiatives. We've got Night to Shine coming up and I hope that you've already signed up to be a part of that. We've extended in the last couple of years, we've extended actually less than two years. It's all happened so quickly. We've extended the influence and the impact of our church in different communities around the greater Indianapolis area through our impact ministries. And, and what our impact ministries are is they are churches in different communities around the city, but we call them Impact Christian Church. And so we have Impact Fairfax and Impact Bethany and Impact Old Southside. But those are churches. We are one, ch we are one church in multiple locations. It's a little confusing because we don't use the name Mount Pleasant in those different locations. We use the name Impact. Right now, in fact, the folks at Impact Fairfax and Impact Bethany are listening to me preach because they're watching the video from last night's service. And tonight, I'm going to go to Impact Old Southside downtown, and I'm going to speak to those people in person. And we have this vision. God has given us a vision. He's given us a revelation. He's given us divine guidance for our church for growth and expansion, both here in the greater Indianapolis area and around the world, we have this tremendous vision statement that we'll put up on the screen and that we've followed for a long time now. Our vision statement is simply to be a church that's locally focused and globally engaged 
with an undeniable impact for Christ. We want to make an impact in the world for Christ, and we live out that vision statement through what we call our core four strategies, and our core four strategies are compelling worship. We want to have worship experiences every weekend that compel people to response, relational discipleship. We believe that people grow spiritually best in community with other believers. I mean, as wonderful as this is, with about a thousand of us in this room today right now, uh, spiritual growth happens best in a more intimate setting. And so we have Bible studies and we have, we've called them home groups in the past. We're changing the name in 2020 just simply to groups that people are a part of. If you're not a part of one of those, then I don't know what I'm going to do with you. Um, <laughs> spiritual influence is the third of our four value or strategies, and spiritual influence is the One Life Initiative, where we, we just ask everyone in our church who is a believer to identify one life in the network of their life, one person who's a long way from God, and then be willing with that one person, that one life, to do three things, to develop a friendship so that they can discover their story and then discern next steps on how you can point them to Christ. And then finally, our fourth strategy, which I think we do so incredibly well, is serving others, and we say across the street and around the world. What a, what a great church. What a great ministry. I love this church. But here's what's on my heart this morning, and this is not the sermon that I thought I would preach. This is not the sermon that I intended to write. But what's on my heart this morning is I feel compelled to tell you that the future impact and growth of this church is not dependent upon an inspiring message from me today about vision in the sense of painting a picture of what the future of this church can look like. It's dependent upon a genuine commitment from all of us here and all of the folks in our different churches that we call impact sites to live with an unwavering commitment to pursue the vision and the revelation and the divine guidance of God in their life every single day. And I can tell you what that is. I mean, there's some specific aspects of it for your life that is unique to you, but foundationally, what God wants for all of us is that we be fully devoted followers of Christ in every part of life. That we put Christ first in every part of life. And when it comes to our our participation in church, that means that we are faithful and responsible members of His church, that we are faithful in worship, that we make a commitment to uh, be a part of a relational discipleship, that we, we are, are a part of a Bible study, we join a group, we, we, we start a group, that we identify that one person we can share spiritual influence with, and that we use our gifts and our talents and our passions to serve others. It also means being consistent in our generosity so that the ministry of this church can continue to be funded. And so what I really feel compelled to say this morning is that we have an incredible church. We have a vision, a strong vision from God that's already in place, but I need you to make sure that it happens. Your participation in this church is not to just come once a week and sit and absorb like a sponge everything that we present. Because at the end of the day, we don't come to church, we are the church. Everywhere we go, in every single part of life. And that's what we need to understand and embrace. And so I'll come back to the original question. 
what's the explanation for your life? What's the explanation for my life? Why do we live the way we live? Why do we make the choices we make? Why do we pursue the things that we pursue? And on and on and on. Back in 2010, a man named David Platt wrote a book called Radical. The tagline was taking back your faith from the American dream. And when I read that book, there was a quote that pierced my heart right from the beginning, and I've never forgotten it. He's talking primarily about the Western church, Western Christianity, the American church, American Christianity, and this is what he said. We are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is about abandoning ourselves. Let that sink in for a minute. And then ask yourself, does this in any way, shape, or form describe my attitude toward my faith? We consciously or unconsciously create a version of Christianity that fits into our lifestyle, a version where we exercise or demonstrate our faith and our faithfulness in a way that works best for us. But that's not what we read in the Scriptures. I understand the power of vision. I believe in the power of vision, but no vision, no matter how powerful it might be, no matter how inspiring it might be, will ever be successful on its own. It's got to be supported by people whose devotion is first and foremost to Christ because we understand that every single thing in our lives takes second place to Christ and His call on our life. So I told you the story of William Borden as we began this morning when he traveled around the world and he felt the call of God in his heart to be a missionary, he wrote in the back of his Bible two words, the words, no reserves. And then when he graduated from Yale and chose to go and enroll in Princeton Seminary rather than take a secular job, he wrote the words, no retreats. At some point in his life before he died, remember he died when he was only 25 years old, at some point in his life before he died, having never even made it to China, he wrote two more words in the back of his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he, he wrote the words, no regrets. No regrets. What's the explanation for your life this morning? I asked myself that question all week long. And it's really, honestly, it's a hard question to answer, but I, I, I came to this conclusion. I, I, when I went to college, I went to a little school in Joplin, Missouri called Ozark Bible College. Uh, since then, it's changed its name. It merged with another school and changed its name to Ozark Christian College. It's been there for a long, long time. When I was a student there, every February, they had something, an event on campus called the Preaching and Teaching Convention. And I always loved that event when it came around for two reasons. First of all, because that meant for three days I didn't have to go to class. <laughs> and secondly, because I knew that I was going to get to hear some great preachers all during the day and each evening. I was going to get to hear some great preachers. I love to listen to great preachers. But what always really stood out to me the most about that convention is that when it would end on Friday night, the director of the music program of the college would get up on the platform, and everybody there would stand, and he would always lead the congregation, the people that were there, in the singing of the same hymn every year,
year after year after year, and they still do it today. And it's one of those songs, if you're like me and you grew up in church, the minute you hear the piano start to play the melody, it, it comes right to you and takes you to a different place. It's called, Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. And the first verse just simply says, Take up thy cross and follow me. I heard my master say, I gave my life to ransom thee. Surrender your all today. And then the chorus says, Wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. And I can only pray 40 years later I can only pray that that is, in fact, the explanation for my life. What about you? What's yours? Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for a time to share together. Uh, not the typical message that we share. We didn't really expose any passage of Scripture and go verse by verse, line by line, but this is a unique weekend every year, and I just pray that you would challenge us to understand that we have this opportunity, this incredible opportunity to be a part of a great church here that makes an impact locally and globally every single day, but that impact is dependent upon our faithfulness and our participation. It's easy to come to a large church and think, you know what, nobody really needs me, but that's not the case. We are all needed. Our devotion, our gifting, our calling, our passion, our service, our contribution, we are all needed. Challenge us to live that out in this new year and beyond. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.